This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. There are positive and negative emotional memories for everyone, but PTSD memories are usually laden with fear, pain, and anger. It could be as simple as shopping in a store when you suddenly feel disconnected from your surroundings and have an image, feeling, or bodily sensation similar to when the trauma happened. You can't concentrate on work, interact with people, or just feel normal due to these intrusive experiences or flashbacks. Nightmares can happen as well, but they're not always the same. There are times when nightmares can be symbolic and have themes like unprocessed trauma. People with PTSD usually try to avoid anything or anyone that might trigger their trauma. A person or place, a situation, an activity, a feeling, a memory, or a thought can all be avoided. Additionally, you might notice that you don't enjoy engaging with others or doing things you enjoyed in the past. In turn, people with PTSD might have relationship problems and feel far from their loved ones. You might even have trouble accessing loving feelings for your partner or kids. Other symptoms of PTSD include irritability, anger outbursts, difficulty sleeping, and difficulty concentrating. As you become hypervigilant, you may become constantly aware of what is going on around you. It is common for some people to increase their alcohol consumption or drug use. It is common for some to engage in risky behaviors, such as driving at high speeds or becoming promiscuous. Although PTSD has a devastating effect on people, there is good news. It can be treated. Valeria interviews Victoria Byler. She is a licensed professional clinical counselor, LPCC, licensed in the state of Ohio, USA. She is a certified grief provider, certified dialectical behavior therapist, EMDR certified therapist, and EMDR consultant in training, full consultant in July with a certification in expressive arts. Additionally, she is Reiki Level 2 certified. Victoria is the founder of Revive Counseling, LLC. She is an avid learner and passionate about guiding others through their healing process, through holistic trauma-responsive modalities. Also, she is a lover of pit bulls, indoor bouldering, and hiking. Meet Victoria at revivecounselingllc.online. Here's the interview with Victoria Byler. In your own words, who is Victoria Byler? I would say that 
I see myself as a guide and an educator. I like to guide my clients through their own journey and educate them along the way to meeting those healing goals that they have um, and guiding them to find themselves and who they are. I love that. I mean, the last part of your answer, it's um, incredibly meaningful. Uncovering, discovering what, who we are. Do you feel like this is actually the purpose of life or could be? <laughs> I think it could be. I think the purpose of life is an answer that each individual has to find. It's not going to be the same across the board, um, but there can be things that may be parallel. Yes, right. Yeah. One of the common thread that I have found is that when I ask this question to my guests, what is the purpose of life? Pretty much all of them say as the first thing, or they include this aspect, they say it's to help others, it's to connect. Isn't that interesting? And I, I often wonder why do we so quickly and so intuitively answer that way? Do you have an idea, Victoria? If you break down every role that we have, right, role as a, a daughter, as a spouse, as a parent, as uh, career roles, you know, uh, a teacher, a nurse, a counselor, um, a bank teller, whatever it is, we are all helping each other in some way. So I think there is a lot of truth to that. Uh, we're all helpers. You know, as I was saying, like mm. the garbage man maybe. <laughs> crossing my street here they're helping me in a way of doing that job and I'm great yes yeah beautifully said so we are naturally doing that now it became very obvious to me I never heard it that way but it's true we always in a way guiding one another helping somehow we are doing this work what inspired you to become a therapist Victoria that's a loaded question. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. <laughs> I originally yeah. went for education. Huh. I wanted to be uh, an elementary huh. school teacher. I love to teach. And I bring that teaching into my work now as a therapist and teaching client skills and teaching them about themselves and how we function in this world and how our relationship with ourselves and with each other and, and the energy around us, right? So I yeah. I find value in education and I think... Once I started higher education myself with my bachelor's degree, the traditional style of teaching as a teacher and being in the school districts wasn't really fitting for me. And I knew that right away. And I listened to that intuition. And I immediately went into psychology and really understanding how the brain works. And it attracted me in another way because it really helped me reflect on why I tick the way I tick you know, in mm, my own yeah. Yeah. family system growing up and how that impacts me now at the time when I was developing myself. I was only 17 when I started college and then turned 18 shortly into that first year. Um, so I was kind of the youngest one uh -huh. of the group, you know, really finding <laughs> myself at that time. Yeah. Um, and uh -huh. now I'm in my early 30s. So over, over that course, really reflecting on myself and where I've been in the world and then that kind of just grew a passion for learning about the brain and the body. And, and I've been learning every day since. It is a lifetime yeah. job, isn't it? <laughs> mm -hmm. To uncover ourselves at different levels. So true. I love the background of therapists. I think most of them that I come across, 
they have had some challenge, some kinds of challenge, different kinds of challenges, and they were curious to explore that. Mm-hmm. And they started the work and then they become interested, so interested in, in the whole process that they became a therapist. So that's really a beautiful place to come from because it's a place of experience, of a knowing, living it and not just coming from theory, which is much more powerful, isn't it? Sorry. How do you integrate Reiki into your sessions, therapy sessions. I'm very curious about that. That caught my attention immediately. So I would love for you to explain what Reiki is and how you bring Reiki into your sessions. Yeah, that's a really interesting question and a very complex answer because using the modalities I use in therapy, they have to be evidence-based and there's not enough evidence in Reiki. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think kind of blending it together. So what that looks like is that first I erase on myself, right? I need to be in the right headspace and the right energy to go into that session. Right. So my Reiki may be a quick, you know, a quick brush of my aura before I go into that session or in between sessions. Cause I end a call and I, start a call within the same minute, wow. right? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm virtual. So yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah. bye. And I'm like, hi, how are you? Right? So that quick yes. transition yeah. and, and mm-hmm. taking that pause to like clear and cleanse, right? I'll even um, light sage and sage myself really quick, 30 seconds between. Um, so that's the first um, first aspect of using Reiki is how can I use it for myself so I can be present for my clients because they, they, they each deserve my presence. Um, and some days you're working with five people or seven people. Some clinicians see more than that, um, but that is my personal boundaries. I don't see more than six or seven in a day. So I can fully, pr- fully provide all my energy. Um, and then I think Reiki is about mindfulness and intentions. And Reiki comes in with love and self-love and grounding, um, self-reflection, words of affirmation, affirmation, all these things that Reiki brings really overlaps with those evidence-based practices that I do provide, right, which is dialectical behavioral therapy, somatic therapies, expressive arts therapies, um, EMDR therapy. So even though I might not actually be doing a specific Reiki cleanse on my client during that therapy session, I'm using modalities and kind of molding them in a way that is ethically allowed and evidence-based. And then I have my Reiki services that um, are more on the side. Right. Oh, yeah. So you usually don't mix them unless it mm-hmm. is. Yeah, there has to be a conversation about it. And yes, I do understand that. That's really, it's really an interesting aspect of healing, energy healing that I have experienced myself. And I and I talked to so many people about it and really, really works. You said something interesting about love. That's exactly what I felt when I, I did my first Reiki session. That's what I felt immediately without even... I mean, that was the the communication tool was love. I felt it in on the air, like, oh my God, my body felt safe. Every, the mind just opened. Yeah. It's incredible. incredible. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that safe word, right? Safety. Safety and love are connected. Right. And when working right. with clients, 
Um, in my therapy practice, we talk about creating safety for the nervous system, right? And and once we can create safety for the nervous system, we can grow and um, really work towards love. And maybe that's really far for some clients to reach towards, but maybe we work on tolerating ourselves and then being okay with ourselves. And, and then like the longer term goal is that love, right? And and we have to be modeled. What is love? How do I express right. love? How do I right. respond to love? And love mm-hmm. can be shown through a therapist in a, you know, professional and and um, appropriate ways. Yes, yes, yeah. And how would you describe that, Victoria? This universal feeling of love, because mm-hmm. that's what I usually lean toward for some reason. <laughs> well, of course, I, I've been traumatized as a child. I, I didn't have that reference. So mm-hmm. I didn't know what relational love was from a mother right. to a child or father. So I didn't have that. So it was really, really a challenge for me to find that relational, personal love. So I seemed like I jumped into the, uh, it was very attracted to me in the idea of universal love, like spiritual love. So maybe that's, that's how I describe it these days as well. But I'm curious to know how you describe what love is for yourself. For myself, I think love is a, first safety. I cannot have love without safety, right? True love, right? Um, not not what the movies want us to believe or yes. these unhealthy right. dynamics that we're mm. told that is love because mm. of someone's desire for control and manipulation. Right, right. right. What is love is true safety spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically. Um, and then from there, I think love is really an act of choice, right? And that can come in, um, you know, Gottman talks about, or no, excuse me, Gary Chapman talks about the five love languages, right? Yeah, so yeah. we can show our love through those um, languages as, to, as well and receive them through one of those five or all five, depending Right, right. Because that's another fascinating idea concept is that we are not all the same. So we perceive we have different ideas of what that is and we receive and give love differently. Right. Mm -hmm. So listening is very important when it comes to that. But I don't know, there's something about, yeah, because my understanding is universal. I always go for the big picture and then, you know, I often reflect and I try to put words into it and it's not easy. But one of the, the, I think the closest way that I can express what that is for myself would be freedom. That everything that exists, everything that, that's happening now, it's exercising freedom. And that is love. If we are able to kind of see from those lens, that perspective of that broad picture of it's, it's freedom. It's okay for this to be happening. Um, not, a, not in a sense of uh, allowing it happen or trying to even be part of it, but in a sense of letting even the feelings kind of be as well. Mm-hmm. The example I have been talking to people here is, you know, the war that's happening now between Israel, the Palestine and all that. The first time when I heard about it, it was the feeling of sadness kind of took mm-hmm. over. And it didn't feel good. It really didn't. The, the body, the mind, I mean, it was really a, almost like a dark cloud. Mm-hmm. And then because I've been doing the work, I just, I just let those feelings just be, you know, come and go. But I'm, I was not pushing away what was happening because I can't do anything about it anyway. So I let it be. I'm not, I don't criticize. I don't even talk about it, actually. Although we could, but I, I won't. That's very political in, in, in a sense. 
humane, the human part of it is just so, it's so natural, isn't it, Victoria, to feel and it's okay to feel because mm-hmm. I don't want to reject those feelings because if right. I do, it's almost like becoming non-human. I don't know. That's, yeah. Yeah, I think feeling is no matter what you go into therapy for or no matter what style your therapist uses, I think there's a huge component of what are you feeling? Can you allow that feeling just to be? Yes, yes. That's one one of the things that I had to learn. It took it mm-hmm. takes, takes a long time. It's a practice, isn't it, Victoria? It is. It really is. And and that practice can be exhausting at times, especially if we grew up without that model and without feeling safe to feel those or express them. So it's really building um, from the ground up for some folks. Yes, yes, yes. So I have lots, well, I have a lot more open questions here for you, but I wanted to disclose the topic. So we'll be talking in a moment. I have lots of questions about EMDR therapy and PTSD. But before that, let me ask you another question. How do you define mental health these days? Mental health, I think, is something that we are working on normalizing and and saying that it is a part of the human function and it is important to take care of that function just like we need water to survive. Mm. Ah. (laughs) Health comes in all these pillars of mental, Mm. emotional, physical, and spiritual. Yes, beautifully said. That's such a beautiful insight. Yes, because there's a lot of judgment around mental health. Mm-hmm. It's something that we can even have a conversation about around the family members because they will use words. I have, I see that and even in a, in a light way, in a playful way, they might say, oh, you're going crazy, you know, and that doesn't, I see now that that, that, that could hurt somebody who is going mm-hmm. through actually something that is, it means a lot to them. That's real to them. Fear, mm-hmm. anxiety. Yes. So I learned I, very early on, I learned not to do that, not to use those words around anyone, not even in a playful way. But it, yes, it needs to be normalized. I agree. The idea of the mind being one of uh, the aspects of being human. I mean, a huge aspect, not just the heart, the lungs. <laughs> it's interesting how we, we, have been conditioned to think about the human body as just, right, the brain and the parts, physical parts. Yeah, I think that we've really expanded on what mental health is and not really, you know, I think before we really saw the brain and the body separate and now we're seeing more holistically how how they are connected um, to each other and, you know, in in a micro and a macro scale of like our environment and then also those four pillars that I mentioned earlier and how our, you know, how it all connects, you know, like if we're not feeling well, how does that affect our mental health? If we're going through spiritual um, turmoil, how does that affect our emotional health? Like all these things are impacted, right? And, and when we experience um, trauma, that even, even impacts our, our nervous system a little bit more of like, well, now I don't want to eat. I'm feeling nauseous. I'm feeling anxious. I'm not eating as much. And that can turn into sickness because we're not nourishing our bodies. So we're really seeing how, um, I kind of think of health and these four pillars really as a woven tapestry and how they're all connected and they can be really complex. Mm, Yes, right. It it very much can be complex. And that's why we started this conversation talking about knowing oneself, the idea of the discovery, right, of oneself. It might be one of the most important ones. Yes. 
with that in mind, I guess I'll ask you this question, my last open question. What is your understanding of spirituality, Victoria, as of today? What is to be spiritual? Yeah, I think it kind of goes along with that purpose too, right? It's going to be different for everyone, but I think overall spirituality, where I'm at now, how I would define it, which may be different (laughs) tomorrow, how I define it, (laughs) is connection, Uh connection to the earth, connection Uh to ourselves, connection to each other, to the Mm -hmm. universe, right? Mm -hmm. Overall connection Mm -hmm. of where we're at and where we want to be. Wow, I love that. (laughs) I love a billion times that answer. (laughs) Connection, yeah, not just to others, but connection to everything, to ourselves, our own past experiences, uh, everything. Yes, yes, yeah. So let's talk about what you do and how you do it. I mean, the specific topic is EMDR therapy and PTSD. So the very first question, I guess, this one, what is PTSD? PTSD comes from how our brain is wired, right? Looking at it through a science lens, a neuroscience, it changes the functionality of our brain. And when that changes, it also changes our body, right? So this is where that holistic complex piece comes in of, you know, trauma can be from a single event or multiple events, which is goes into what I believe that you may be leaning into is what's trauma versus complex trauma, right? Yes. So, yeah. so yeah. one could be one event, a parent's divorce, a grief of a pet, a loss of a pet, um, being bullied. There's so many categories that fall under trauma. And trauma isn't the event itself. I would say trauma is more about the, the event and how that person experiences and process or wax process of that event. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yes, more than one. Yeah, the the interesting thing about trauma that I have been learning by speaking to so many wonderful people like yourself is that it came across something called repression, I think. It's not even suppression, but repression of an event, like the memories. Because I interviewed um, a scientist who discovered that his clients or people that he was treating, studying, that they were having symptoms that came from trauma, but they had no reference. They couldn't recall what happened to them and how, it, how that happened. So he believed that, I mean, he believes that's something that he's putting out there now, that there is such a thing as repressed trauma. How amazing. And then I heard about something, you, the article you sent to me, I think it relates to this. It read, while the human brain has an amazing capability to process stressful information, it is sometimes impaired so that the event is stored in a state-specific form. So talk to me about the state-specific. Is that similar to repression, Victoria? Is that, um, or it's somehow different? This is a different topic. So trauma is in the body, whether it's repressed or not. Right. So someone might come in and say, you know, I'm having these symptoms. Um, It could be anxiety. It could be depression. It could be, you know, you name it. And it could come from a trauma that someone might not identify as, oh, that, that, if they could pinpoint the event, they might be like, oh, you know, I would never have said that event was trauma, traumatic, right? Like, but their body believes that it is, right? And they feel stuck in that. So, you know, some people might say, well, that didn't really bother me that much. I'm like, well, maybe not 
cognitively potentially, or maybe not that you're aware of, but your body's responding this way. I think it, it's a case by case. Um, but yeah, when we experience trauma, trauma was in the body, whether you remember it or not. Mm, right? And yeah. when we look at trauma, like when we experience trauma and we're like, I need help, right? Because um, again, a bad event doesn't always mean trauma. Right? It can be a combination of bad event and how we process mm. or lack of process mm. that event um, and other yeah. variables, variables too. So when we come and ask for help, oftentimes I see that my clients are stuck in a fight or flight or a freeze and fawn response, right? A hyperarousal or a hypoarousal state. And really working on shifting the brain into like, hey, we're safe now. We're not in that event anymore. Right. So it is complex and it, it it really depends on the person, right? Mm-hmm. And that's true because an event that could traumatize somebody could not traumatize somebody else. So the minds are different. Yeah, like one event, right? For example, a car accident. I tell my clients, you know, just to normalize their experience, like someone could walk away from that car accident and be like, I'm fine, right? And they really could be. Someone else could develop panic disorder and anxiety around driving. Someone else could have depression, you know, it, it's so complex because we're looking at it from one the event or events that are happening, our DNA and how we are genetically formed, our resiliency and skills, right? Do you have coping skills already or do you not have that? What about your support system? How about attachment? Have you had healthy attachment or not? Like, so all these precursors before the event are going to also impact how we process or not process that event. Mm, so, so true. And we see that a lot with grief. That's a very common event that causes trauma. And I've seen that with my husband and people around me. I never mm-hmm. lost anyone, so I don't have the experience, but yes. And remember, grief is yeah. in not just death, right? Grief is in trauma itself. Mm. We lose a part yeah. of ourselves. Ah, right? yeah. There's yeah. a lot of grief and trauma. We grieve our childhood or we grieve what we... We got or we grieve what we didn't get. Mm. I think there's over 43 types of grief. Yes. Wow. I didn't know that. That's amazing. That's how complex it can get, right? I had a question for you about, oh, yes, about highly sensitive people. Do you work with some of them? Is that, a, is that considered actually a condition, <laughs> something to be aware of? Or because some people are more sensitive than others, I have found. I mean, I am very sensitive. Yeah, yeah, I think that, I think it depends on how we want to define that, okay? Because there is going to be more emotional sensitivity to those that are neurodivergent, right? Um, ADHD, autism, borderline personality disorder, more sensitive to things because of that unhealthy attachment of like fear of abandonment. So we may have some sensitivity there with emotions and emotional dysregulation. Right. So... Um, yes, there is going to be a difference with that emotional sensitivity. But again, um, it, it's a person-by-person experience. Yes, it very much is, Victoria. Mm-hmm. Yes. So my next question is about the signs of PTSD. What are the most common signs? Yeah, so we, we know how complex PTSD is, so how it can show up, right? I think the most common ones 
are going to be within anxiety, depression, and attachment, right? How is our relationship with ourselves? Because that sets us up with how our relationship is with others. And that is based on the relationship we have with our caregivers. Not necessarily our parents, but our caregivers. Um, So um, that can look like, you know, I'm going to be avoidant. I'm going to stay away from people. I don't trust people. Or maybe I'm overly trusting and I don't want people to leave. I'm fear of abandonment. And then we see anxiety and depression, right? Um, And we can see trauma look look like panic disorders. Um, uh, Personality disorders, I would say, are, are, um, I would argue that personality disorders are just a lot of trauma, right? I would not be surprised down the road if they got rid of those in the DSM and really look at that of like, that's just complex trauma, right? We can have trauma without personality disorders, but we see personalities usually always with um, trauma. That's amazing. You know, the more I, I think I talked to you off record before recording this, that by reading the article you sent me, and every time I interview any therapist, it's almost like a mini therapy for myself because I have never done therapy really seriously. I went uh, straight to spirituality. That was my path, I guess. I needed so much, a larger kind of deeper understanding of reality in order to find sanity. So, and I see that I, you know, the more I read about and listening to you now, I see that I have experienced pretty much everything, anxiety, depression, fear, panic attacks, low self-esteem. Yeah, I would argue everything in the DSM. <laughs> it's like some type of trauma, right? Like, Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. It fascinates me how resilient we are as human beings because, you know, being, being my own, having my own case as a study case, <laughs> a case study, uh, as you say, I see that. Wow. How did I come to be, you know, to to be doing what I do today, to be the person I am today. How did this happen coming from where I came from? It's almost impossible, but who I am. Yeah, that resiliency piece, right? Like I remind remind people that our body is designed to survive, right? And it will do anything to survive. And those mechanisms our body does, like blocks the memories, causes the, the body... Um, to stay in fight or flight, freeze, fawn, right? Like all these defense mechanisms our body does in those experiences for survival, that shows how resilient we are designed to be. However, we have to, the thing in therapy is working of like, hey body, hey brain, like we're safe now. Like that skill that you just did was so awesome for this person to get through the thing that they got through. And, and now it's okay. You can kind of like, you know, you can take off the armor, you can, but the body's like, nope, yes. right? And we have to yeah. teach it that safety and that love. Mm-hmm. So that way we can mm-hmm. not just be in that survival state anymore. Mm-hmm. So yes. it's there to protect us. But if we stay stuck in that, it doesn't yeah. feel like it's protecting us anymore. Because right. it's like wreaking havoc on our own bodies. Right, right, right. And I feel like the body's the last one to let go of those traumas. I noticed that it's still... I see my own body, this still holds some of those memories, even though I have no recollection of them intellectually. They don't, I have no idea why the body is responding the way it does. So I, w- I wonder if, does it ever go away, Victoria, those memories or cell memory, right? You call it. Right. Like when we work on trauma, and I think this is where we 
even have to explore what is healing, right? Because sometimes we wish healing was Mm. this never will bother me again. Right. It's not realistic, right? And then we're kind of like aiming for a goal that's never attainable and then we're beating ourselves up over it. So really exploring, can healing possibly be awareness and the skills and confidence to face it? Because I look at it as three layers. The first layer is like, of like, for example, anxiety, right? Because anxiety can be a symptom of trauma. um, The first layer is like, um, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if that happens, right? And that's technically brainstorming. And it's okay to be cautious, right? Cautious is what keeps us alive. The second layer is where we start to kind of get problematic of, you know, what if this happens and we judge it and we say, how horrific would that be? What if this happens and how horrible that would be? And we start catastrophizing for survival, Mm -hmm. but really we're like building ourselves up into a panic. And then the third layer of that is we take that and we go deeper with it and say, if that horrible, horrific, awful thing happened, I would never be able to handle it. I would not have power. I would not be able to cope with that, right? We belittle ourselves and our own abilities. So when we look at healing, it's like, can we have the awareness of our body, awareness of our emotions, awareness of I'm okay, mm. right? My body doesn't believe it, but yeah. but can I get my body to get to that point yes. where I do believe that I'm safe? Yeah. And having the confidence to base it. So if that horrible, awful, horrific thing happened, I got this. It's not going to be comfortable, mm. but I got this. Yes. I love that you mentioned that. It's what a beautiful and insightful message for all of us. Yes. Is one of the misconceptions about healing. It is exactly that, that, okay, I'll be healed and then that'll be it. I'll be happy and peaceful forever. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, right. Oh, you're about to say something, Victoria. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to yes. say, and that's where EMDR comes in. Of like, I, I love this analogy that my consultant, when I was learning about EMDR, she shared this with me and now I use it um, myself. But, you know, think of a traumatic event like you burn yourself on the stove, right? You burn your hand really bad on the stove cooking. And now every time you go into the kitchen and you see that stove or even think about that stove, you have that visceral response, your hand throbs, your heart rate increases, yeah. that panic happens, those those cognitive beliefs, those mm. things, those thoughts about yourself start to happen. Like I'm stupid. Yeah. I, I should have done something. I should have done better. Yeah. I, um, I'm powerless, right? Like all these yeah. negative thinking patterns yeah. and EMDR and trauma work mm. works on, can we, take away the heat from that. So that way you can walk past the kitchen and be like, oh, I remember the last time I burned my hand. That kind of sucked, but I'm okay. Oh, wow. That's how powerful EMDR is, right? Mm -hmm. I have heard about it, of course. I have never done it, but I interview so many people about it that, I mean, the first time I remember listening and having this conversation, it just made me feel safe. It kind of relaxed the body. It's it's almost as a sign that this was a, a very empowering and powerful tool. Wow. So talk to me a bit more about EMDR therapy. How does it work? I know it has an eight-phase kind of psychotherapy approach. I have all the information here, but I'll be reading it because I don't know much about it. So from your experience as a therapist, how do we prepare even? How, how does a client prepare for it? Yeah. Yeah. So 
long-winded answer yes, <laughs> for a right. great question. It is, it is, it is. So there's eight phases, as you said. Phase one is going to be history and treatment plan, right? So it's really going to be, you know, what are the events from the past that created the current symptoms and issues that you're dealing with on a day-to-day or the present issues that cause you distress? Um, or, um, you know, what are, your, what are you fearful about in the future even? So it's really about goal setting and what are we going to work on? Right. And then phase two is preparation. And this is a part where I, I'm probably going to talk the most about here. Um, and preparation is really the combination of the client needs to be aware of their body. Right. So teaching awareness tools. And that's where a lot of those other modalities that I'm certified in comes into play. Expressive arts, dialectical behavioral therapy, um, even um, somatic approaches, right? which we could argue expressive arts and DBT have somatic approaches within them too. Uh, somatic is a very broad term. Um, but really learning how do I know when my nervous system is activated? And the second part to that is how can I bring my activation down if it's too high and up if it's too low, right? Um, so kind of that sweet spot that we're looking for. And it doesn't have to be that, like, we're not bothered, but rather than I'm in control, I feel sad, I feel upset, I feel angry, I feel overwhelmed, but I can stay in the moment of those emotions. Okay. Um, I often swap those phases, phase one and phase two, sometimes even setting up the goals of like, hey, let's talk about those traumatic things that you want to work on. That is triggering itself. So I like to prepare my clients ahead of time. Like, we're not even going to talk about what you want to work on necessarily because I don't want to trigger you with no skills. I want you to have that awareness and those skills to handle what comes up. Mm -hmm. And then we'll go into the phase one. And then once we set up the target and we're on the same page, we do uh, phases three through seven. And um, that's where we identify in phase three what's the negative belief what's the event what's the image of that event that's the worst part of it what do you want to believe instead um and then we do the reprocessing with the bilateral movement in phase four um we install the positive belief with bilateral movement in phase five clear up any distress that's still lingering in the body in phase six just make sure we cleaned it all up and then get that closure in phase seven and phase eight is a little bit more of um, how can we take that positive belief and really strengthen that for the next thing that's similar to that original target, right? So um, I don't know if that makes sense. I can touch base on that some more. But um, uh, yeah, so and then in phase two, we also want to familiarize you with that bilateral movement, whether that's with the eyes, um, tactile with um, uh, tappers that you can hold, or audio bilateral, and doing that and strengthening that slowly um, with meditations. Yeah. Oh, wow. How wonderful. And I see why it really works because it's using mind body yeah, connection. It's, it's not, they are not, you're not separating them. So EMDR really brings everything together. Yes. How fantastic. 
I have a question. I wanted to make a comment about the belief system, like replacing those belief systems. I guess for me, um, it's I, I tried in the end when I had done enough healing, was healed enough sufficiently. I, I remember interviewing somebody, a therapist who said that, you know, I'm just sufficiently healed. <laughs> when I asked her about healing and what's the purpose of healing, the destination of healing, she said, just being healed enough. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it made a lot of sense to me. And then I remember uh, now, so it's, instead of a belief system, I guess it went back to understanding. I really wanted to be able to understand why humans hurt one another. Why didn't my mother love me? My, I mean, it's just, it should be something natural for a human being to do, right? To care for an infant. Why didn't they do that? You know, they didn't provide a safe space. It was quite the opposite. So uh, my understanding as of now that really kind of opens my heart and then it makes me feel safe almost with every other human being I meet because it, I don't, the trauma doesn't pass. It's not passing on. Is because I understand that it came from ignorance in a sense of ignoring what is true, what was true to them in the case that they were already perhaps traumatized that they didn't have, they probably had the same, I mean, I, I don't, I can't trace that because I didn't, I was not interested in trying to understand their mental construct and you know, what they went through. I'm sure they were traumatized too. And I have heard some stories, but it's just that, that they ignored the fact that they could have been healed. They could find a way of understanding themselves better and going deeper and deeper, but then they didn't. So that's what happens with most people, I guess. We hurt others when we don't fully understand what, what, who we are. Yeah. And I would say to touch base on that, if I may, yeah. is that that's something that you've had to grieve. Mm, yes. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> It was a long grief. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, Victoria. It was. <laughs> yes. It felt very much that way, right? Ah, yes. So true. Huh. Now you made me, you stopped me for a moment <laughs> about the grief <laughs> piece of it. Yeah. Right. There was a loss of not having a healthy childhood, but then not having a loving mother, loving father, safe. All that. Oh yeah. Now you tapped into something that was so true. That was, I was grieving from... That age when I left, wow, yeah, up to 37. I'm 47 now. So up to 37 years old, I remember, yeah, there was the, I was angry and I was depressed. And I mean, it was just going from one emotion to another. I mean, destructive emotion yeah. to another. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And when we look at, when we look at that, and I'm glad, thank you for sharing, first of all, that personal information. Um, that's very vulnerable of you. So I want to thank you for sharing that. And um, we thank may, you for listening. <laughs> I'm thinking, course. oh my god, yeah. Oh, you're but so. we may we may always grieve that at different times, right? It might always come back up, and I think sometimes to make sense of our trauma, we put it on ourselves, which is those negative beliefs, and those are often "I am" or "I am not" statements, right? Like "I'm not enough," that's why they did that, or "I'm to blame," and that's why, right? Like we. We blame ourselves to try to make sense of it. But then when we create that negative cognition, we kind of have those rose-colored glasses. And that's how we see the world. And we attract more of more of what affirms that belief. Ah, right? so true. In order to survive, even though it's not very effective. Ah, yes. Mm, so true. And I, 
throughout my life, yeah, I have been doing exactly that. Being around people that would resemble my father and my mother. Some, sometimes both of them together, which is even worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really yeah, bad combination. Yes. And then was hurting myself. How interesting how it just perpetuates. And that has something to do with the subconscious, right, Victoria? Because we are not aware of what's happening. And even the idea of working too much, you know, when sometimes when I don't work, I feel like, oh, I should be doing something. Yeah, there's that mm. negative cognition. Yes. I should. Right, mm-hmm. right. Where does it say that you should do that? Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God, it almost makes me want to cry. But because not just feeling uh, compassion for myself, but at the level of body-mind, of course, because this is the human experience, right? We are using the tool body-mind. I do have, do access another level of reality, which is safe for me to explore, you know, the body-mind and its complexities and traumas and pain. I, I had my spiritual understanding of, you know, being aware of them. So, I, I mean, it's very real for me. I know it might sound uh, abstract for some people, but it's very real when I tap into, ah, there's something here that watches the movement of the mind, you know, like listen, I'm listening to my own voice, I'm listening to you, and then the body, what it's doing. So, wait a minute, there's something here that's unattached from the body-mind experience, although it can be, it can feel attached and one and the same, but if you meditate, which I do, meditation really helps to, to see that there is not even a separation, but there's a space in between them that we can see. So that helps me a lot because then I can explore the uh, complexities of the body-mind, my own body-mind, from a more compassionate, loving, and safe way. It's very safe from that place because it's very loving. So, and I know it accepts me as I am the whole... The, whole as a whole so it's not trying to push away anything so I don't know if that makes sense to you but um yeah (laughs) so another question that I have is is it EMDR for everyone would you recommend this modality to everyone or some people need to go through some sessions or even a conversation to or you can actually know when they are a candidate for this therapy yeah yeah, that's a great question. So I think EMDR originally was like like um, trauma, right? But once we see that trauma is more complex, then, you know, as we've been talking, EMDR can be used for anything. Self-esteem, anxiety, depression, a single event, complexity of events. Um, it can be used for anything, right? Um, it can be used for eating disorders, personality disorders, anxiety disorders, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but really finding a therapist that is not only trained in EMDR, but in that specific niche of EMDR. Right. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. This is very, very helpful to know. Also, we're almost at the end. I do have the ending questions too, but there's another question I have about the number of sessions because I read in the, the article you sent me, the pens, right? So talk to me for a moment about that. Yeah. So again, case by case. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. No concrete yeah, answer. Yeah. I wish it was right. as easy as that. You know, right. make life a lot easier on everyone. Um, but yeah, it depends on um, what are we coming in with, right? What are our coping skills already? Where's our nervous system at already? What's our ability to regulate that nervous system? Beginning therapy. How? Um, you process learning and using those skills, right? If you're only using the skills that you're learning in phase two, once a week, it's probably going to take a while to get you ready for phases three through seven versus someone that is using skills 
you know, for example, seven hours of, of a day, right? Now, I'm not yeah. saying like you have to set aside like an yeah. actual seven hours, yeah. but, you know, implementing these throughout your day. So it really is going to depend on each individual. And that's why therapists are trained to assess that. And um, sometimes we're like, oh, we're good. Okay, we did some phase two. We set up our goals in phase one, touch base on phase two, just a review, and then let's go. And then we get, we might start a target or we might even get through a couple targets and then be like, oh, we need to go back to phase two and really strengthen those again before we continue. It's okay to move back into phase two to strengthen. Yeah. So it's not linear. Yeah. I like that. I like that better too, because then it's working with what's natural, right? What's on Yeah. Field. Instead of seeing that as like, oh, I failed. Like I had to go back to phase two. I say, you know, it's just like a hike. Right. You have to replenish your water bottle. You have to change your socks. You have to change <laughs> yes. your pads. Like it's okay to stop and like replenish <laughs> and then go back on your journey. Like that's okay. Yes. How wonderful. And you see, this is part of the way you defined mental health, isn't it? It's very much part of that, like normalizing, in my opinion, everything, not desensitizing in the sense of not becoming sensitive to certain things like violence. We don't want to normalize that, I guess. But it's normalizing the feelings that come from that. Like when I see any kind of violence, yes, because I have been traumatized with violence. So it's something happens and I allow that the feelings to just be without judging them. I love what you said, the way you say that. Yeah, about phase two, I believe, them, they are having these skills or working on them, awareness being the first one and then having the tools to deal with the, the triggers and what's happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just love that. It has something to do with self-trust too. I guess that's what comes exactly. to mind. Exactly. Right? Yeah, because when we experience trauma, our body's like, I don't trust anything. I don't trust anyone. I don't trust myself. Right? Like we lack confidence in ourselves because sometimes I see people with beliefs of like, well, I'm responsible for this. Oh, I'm like, you are not responsible yeah. for mm. the evil that someone put onto you. Right. Right. right? Like that is not your fault. Um, mm. And when we have that belief that we are responsible, we don't trust ourselves. Right. So really working on trusting ourselves, which goes back to that safety. Mm, yes, that's it. Yeah, that's, oh boy, that's it. <laughs> How amazing the human experience, right, Victoria? It's fascinating. Uh, fascinating. I mean, just kind of experiencing, embody my own experience and, you know, and exploring my own experience has been amazing. And then seeing you, you know, therapists doing this work, exploring <laughs> the experiences of others, that must be incredible too, enriching for you. Uh, what a beautiful to, work. Yeah. Yes, I'm honored to be yeah, with wow. my clients and their journey. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I that's my dog. Doctor. <laughs> We're almost at the end. Tell him or her. So oh, she's another dog. So <laughs> I have a few more questions. It has been wonderful to talk to you. Um, really wonderful. Thank you for being Thank you. Thank you for having me. So is there anything that you left unsaid before I ask you my final question, Victoria? Anything that you'd I like to share? I think it's important for people to know that they are worthy of healing, right? However that looks for them, they are worthy of that and worthy of, of the time it takes to get there. Yes. Ah, yes. Well said. Yeah, beautifully said. That's, I hear compassion there. Yeah, I'm like cheerful. Um, <laughs> yes, right. How beautiful. I'm very proud of my clients of what they have to face and ah. feel and they are so mm. deserving of their own love. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you. I know. Yeah. You make me cry. <laughs> uh, yes. How wonderful. Thank you again. So uh, my last question, I guess, 
would include that one, right? That wish, that vision, but I'll ask you anyway. What three experiences you wish everyone to have before they lose the body, before they die? I don't think I've ever been asked that before. That is something I'm going to be reflecting on. <laughs> um, I think, what was the question then? Three questions. Yeah, three experiences you wish everyone to have before they die. I think bringing it full circle to safety, love, and freedom. Yeah. Yes. Safety, love, and freedom. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. That sounds wonderful. I mean, that sounds like heaven on earth, doesn't it? <laughs> Thank you so much again, uh, Victoria, for being you, for doing what you do, for being open to the questions, you know, to, to being part of a podcast like this. A lot of times um, I have my own experience to share, but then I love, you know, I have a lot of, I'm very curious about these things. So thank you for being open. And I would love, of course, to meet you again. And before we say goodbye for today, where's the best place to find more information about you? I um, it can be found at revivecounselingllc.online. Um, for Reiki services and therapy services as well. Yes, wonderful. I'll have the link on the podcast profile page. Thank you again for your presence and we'll talk soon. Bye for Thank now. You so much. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Victoria Byler and her work, please visit revivecounselingllc.online. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.